If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 7 through 10. And welcome to those of you, once again, uh, who are in the room. Also, those of you who are watching online today. And like Chad said at the outset, it is so good to be talking to actual people, not staring at the exit sign in the back like it's my friend. So I am so glad to have you guys with us this morning. Uh, If you have a background in the church, if you ever took a Bible class or just around Easter in years past, if you watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston uh, around Easter, you have some level of background and understanding of the story of Moses. Moses and and Pharaoh, right? The children of Israel. And and so the way the the story goes, the ten plagues, the way that works is is, um, God would tell Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. If you don't let my people go, a plague is going to come upon you. And so Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And so the plague would come. And then Pharaoh would say, hey, I'll let them go. Just stop this. Let me out of all this. So Moses would pray, ask God to stop the plague. God would stop the plague. And only for Moses to renege, or only for Pharaoh to renege on his promise, not let the people go, and on and on and on on repeat. That's the way the plagues work. And so you can just see on the little cheat sheet that we created, just kind of walk through, this happens over and over and over, ten different times, ten plagues. And so the first one, you have the water turned to blood, the Nile River. Then you have frogs, then the gnats come, and then the flies come, and then you have the death of all the livestock of the Egyptians. Then you get the boils that come, the sores that are on the Egyptians, hail, locusts, darkness, and then finally, the death of the firstborn son of every home that does not have the Passover mark on the doors. And we're going to deal with that one explicitly next week. But this morning, what we're going to do is deal with the first nine as a group. Kind of a 30,000 foot view of the first nine, because certainly like while there are, you know, each plague has some differences in, in, in certain ways, the first nine ultimately have some themes on repeat, just over and over and over driving home the same message. And that message is this, it's just highlighting The Godness of God. The Godness of God. Also, the just judgment of God. We're going to see that theme. We're also going to see the theme of the gracious mercy of God. And so I just I just gave you your outline. If you want to go ahead and fill those in and you just kind of take some, you know, smaller notes. That's that's the basic outline. Number one this morning, your sermon guide. You may have one on Facebook as well if you downloaded it. But number one, the godness of God. Like, this is what the plagues are all about. They are showing God that Jesus is not a house cat. He's the Lion of Judah. There's power. There's sovereignty. Number two, the just judgment of God. And then again, number three, the gracious mercy of God. These things are what the plagues are all about. And so let's just get started with the first one. The godness of God. And again, this is like the main idea of the plague cycle. Like this is the main one. The other two are kind of almost subpoints. This is what the, the whole thing is about. Like God is God. I mean, that's what God is trying to drive home here to 
Pharaoh and the Egyptians, to Moses, Aaron, and the Israelites, and to every single one of us, that His priority in all things is to make His great name known. This is like almost in every single plague. I'll give you a couple of of examples. And so in the first plague, where the Nile was turned to blood, God says in chapter 7, verse 17, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. In the second plague, the plague of frogs, chapter 8, verse 10, Moses said to Pharaoh, Tomorrow be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 9, verse 14, the seventh plague, the plague of hail. And I'm going fast, you don't have to try to flip to these right now. I'm going to have you look at some passages later on. But God told, tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. This is what God's driving home. Verse 15, For by now I could... I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Like, I could have killed you already if I wanted to. Verse 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then after God rains down the hail and Pharaoh begs Moses to stop it, Moses says in verse 29, still chapter 9, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch up my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Friends, this is the macro theme, not only of the first nine plagues, but of the entire Bible. That God does, and we don't like this, this this hits us wrong, but God does what God ultimately, like He does what He does ultimately for the praise of His name. For the renown of His name. From cover to cover, the Bible declares that God above all things is about God. Now, humans that are that way, we rightly kind of like don't like it. Like, you kind of fool yourself, aren't you? You're kind of pride-filled. That's, you know, uh, stuck up a bit. But the difference is, this is God. There's no one like Him. There's no one to compare to Him. He's the Creator, not a creature. He is God. I mean, what else is he going to look to, to praise or worship? What else is going to be higher than him? And so you can think about it this way. Why do you exist? Like, why do you personally exist? Why did God create you? He created you. Uh, Westminster Catechism, 1647, asks the question this way, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, why He created you, is that you might worship and glorify God forever. That is why you were created. That is why I exist, you exist. God created us to worship and enjoy Him forever. Why? Because He's God. For the simple answer that He is God. There is nothing higher than Him. 
He is supreme over all things. He created all things. He's eternal. Anything that exists, exists because of Him. He is the supreme reality of the universe. There is nothing higher than God. And therefore, we are to worship and glorify Him forever. But it's the same way for God Himself. As the supreme reality of the universe, there's nothing greater for Him to look to. And so listen to me, if God was not all about Himself, and instead focused on something other than Himself, something less, if He didn't focus on the supreme reality of the universe, that would make Him an idolater. Because you're not focusing on what is the supreme reality of the universe. Like, you know this, and we know this. If you've got any background in the church, we would say this. Like, you need to have your priorities in line, things like that, right? And that if you put anything before God, that's idolatry. Well, it's the same thing for God. God can't put anything before God. He, before Himself. Because He's God. Friends, there is nothing like him on earth he is completely other and glorious and so for his glory and our good he wants to make that known and so over and over he says hey this is happening so that you may know that i am the lord i've tried to tell you you won't listen, and so I'm going to come and show you and, listen to me, expose your counterfeit and bankrupt idols. Those things that the Egyptians and we falsely put on the throne of our lives that we think will give us purpose, meaning, satisfaction, security, Blessing. God wants to expose them because they are fake and they're actually robbing us of the very things we want because they can't deliver. Only God can. And it's robbing Him of the worship and glory that He alone is due. And so the plagues are judgments not just on the people of, the, of Egypt, not just on Pharaoh, but also upon their false counterfeit idols and pagan gods. And so in your <clears throat> little cheat sheet that we developed, we've got some gods that are on the right-hand side, all right? And so we'll go with the first one. So happy is the first one listed there, and it's not lost on me the irony of how we pronounce his name in English. He's not going to be very happy but he was worshipped as sort of a giver of life. Because everything in Egypt revolved around the Nile. Everything in the Nile Basin, their economics, their, like everything revolved around the Nile. But here in Plague One, we have Happy, the giver of life, bleeding out as the Nile is turned to blood. God's mocking and unveiling. He's exposing this counterfeit God so that you so that they might know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Then in the second plague, we've got Hecate, the goddess of fruitfulness. 
whether that's children or material blessing. And she was represented by a frog's head, so like an ancient Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Like that's what she kind of looked like. But by the end of the second plague, what we have are heaps and heaps and heaps of piled up dead frogs in the streets, rotting away. She has no power. She's not real. The third plague, you've got Geb, the god of dust. And with a word, the one true God turns the dust to gnats. Matter of fact, if you have the King James Version, the way they translate that's actually worse. They translate it as lice. Now, everybody in here just started, oh. Right? <clears throat> Sarah and I get a little PTSD, olive oil combing through, nitpicking, like truly, that's where the word comes from. PTSD, been there, done that. Give you a few more. Plague five. Plague five, the plague of livestock. That's mocking the scores and scores and scores of sacred cows. And we have those too. The sacred cows that Egypt had. So Apis, Hathor, Isis, they're all lying dead and rotting out in the field. These gods that were supposed to give them some, they're all dead, rotting. And I don't know if you've ever been around a rotting cow. I have. They reek. And there's thousands of them. And then the ninth plague is all about God's wrath against the false idea of Amun-Ra, the sun god, kind of their highest god. Pharaoh was said to be a son of Amun-Ra. And so when the sun would rise in the morning, they said when Amun-Ra was rising in the morning, that was symbolic of life. But when God speaks, there is no light for three days. Exposing the counterfeitness of these false gods. And so God is doing that in grace and mercy to try to help the Egyptians as well as the Israelites to see that these things are idols. He is via judgment giving them mercy to see the truth if they will only see. And we like to look back on them and be like, oh, those silly little Egyptians, they're so primitive. We today are so much more developed and enlightened and, and just understand things so much more than these crazy people who worship 114 gods. But I guarantee someone in this room watching online worships the god Apis. The god of economic success. That's your god. And everything you do in your life is around worshiping Him. And you may not have a shrine in your house that you're burning incense to, but you have a shrine in your garage that's a car you can't afford. Or maybe the shrine is your house. And you've completely defined your life's worth based upon your net worth. You worship Apis. And so folks, we aren't better than these people. We're not more enlightened than these people. We are these people. And God wants to wake us up from our stupor and show our idols are empty things and that devotion to anyone or anything but to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is bankrupt and damning. And that takes us right into the second major point this morning. <clears throat> the just judgment of God. 
And when we think about God being just, we kind of get a, a split mentality in our minds. We get very confused and we, we, we get very inconsistent. Like when it relates to things like, you know, um, Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Darfur, we want justice. When it comes to 9-11, we want justice. When it comes to the, the massacres around Thanksgiving in Tigray, Ethiopia that are continuing on to today, we want justice for that. Rightly so. But we don't want justice when it comes to us and our sin. Then we want to plead, well, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Which is true. But we take that and we try to redefine it and, and rip God of His power and His wrath and His mercy and redefine God's love as some sort of fairy-like, wrathless, tinkerbell love of pixie love Jesus dust that He throws on people and there's no wrath, there's no anger, and all He wants to do is make you happy. And that's not true. And then those who speak of God's judgment and wrath and absolute fierce hatred of sin, we label as backwood fundamentalists who probably handle snakes, marry their cousins, and cook meth in the basement. And sometimes the shoe fits. God help us. There are wacko cults out there who like take joy in thinking about people burning in hell forever and forget God's grace and mercy. Yet the Bible is clear. God hates sin. And He's serious about it. And the plagues are a sneak peek of the wrath that is to come someday when Jesus returns upon all people who have not trusted in Him by faith. Like God is holy. God, we talk about that. God is other. He is separate. He is sinless. He is perfect. And He is good. And He is loving. And it is because of these things, because He's good, because He's loving, that He necessarily has to have wrath. I mean, like, use your brains. Think with me. The very fact that God is love demands that He have wrath. It is only love that can create wrath in anyone. Like, if you don't care about anything, well, why are you going to be mad about it, right? Like when, um, Brian Williams, I love you, but when Alabama loses, I don't get all upset. Some of you are like, praise God, but uh, it doesn't bother me because I don't love them. Right? It's only love that can cause you to, to be upset about things. Like, if you came into my house and tried to get after my kids, my wife, then I am going to become someone you have never seen before. And I may only be a buck sixty, but I'm wiry. <laughs> and I'm going to do that because I love them. With all my heart. And so wrath doesn't eliminate love. It shows it. It proves it. I mean, if God was not bothered by our sin and wickedness, then He would be at best indifferent to sin and at worst care nothing for the pain and sorrow that rebellion causes all over the world. And so God's wrath is tied directly to the fact 
that He is good and loving. These things can't be separated. If He doesn't have wrath, He's not good and loving. He has judgment. Just judgment. He has wrath. Sin will be punished. And while on the one hand, outside of unless you were in Christ, and then Jesus took it. But while that is terrifying, the idea of sin, God's wrath being poured out, while that is terrifying on the one hand, it's also comforting on the other hand because it means that the injustices of this world will not go on forever. That justice will someday come. As I've said before, God will one day step onto the stage of this broken world and say, I'll be your huckleberry. I'll bring a reckoning. It's a reckoning of just judgment born out of love. And so if you've been hurt, if you've been harmed, if you've been violated, if you've been wronged, if you've been falsely accused, if you've been treated unfairly, if you've been abused, if you've been sexually assaulted, and it looks like your assaulter is getting away, he will not get away from God. God is just, and He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so it's not on you to repay. And this is one of the things, this idea of vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is one of the things that the plays are showing us. Because that's what God is doing here. He's bringing just judgment upon Egypt for centuries of idolatry, and 400 years of slavery and treating people as subhuman and lesser than for mocking the image of God that all people bear. This is the active wrath of God and it's just a preview. But just as God gave Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to escape from the wrath to come. He so gives us chance after chance after chance after chance. But if we refuse, someday, we will experience the active wrath of God for all eternity in hell. And so turn away. God's provided in Christ a way of escape. Jesus has borne your sins in your place and says, trust me. Turn to Christ. But in addition to the active wrath that we see here, we also get a little bit of teaching about the passive wrath of God. And we receive that through the continual hardening of Pharaoh's heart that we see. We learn about the passive wrath of God. I mean, if you read through all of the plagues, or if you just look at the little uh, cheat sheet that we provide, I, I even wrote down like Pharaoh's response in here. And you can read through, and some of them you can't really tell like maybe who it is, but by and large, there are two ways that Pharaoh's continued hardening of heart is spoken of in the plagues. Sometimes it says he hardened his own heart. Sometimes it says the Lord hardened his heart. We see both of these at the same time 
at the end of the seventh plague. And so, will you go to Exodus chapter 9 with me? Verse 34. We're going to look at the end of the seventh plague, which is the plague of hail, and just into the beginning of the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. And you're going to see both of these things. Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and then the Lord doing it as well on display. And I want you to turn there because I want you to see I'm not making this up. Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. God had told Moses he's not, he's not going to do it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, like, uh, we're going to do this again. I'm going to do another plague. Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And so, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh did. And yet, it was the will of the Lord that Pharaoh's heart should be hardened. And so who's responsible for Pharaoh's rebellion? Pharaoh is. 100%. He made these choices. And yet, the Lord, in His marvelous sovereign providence, governed even Pharaoh's rebellion, that his heart might be hardened, that he might execute his judgment, and the world might know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And so friends, listen to me. Sometimes God judges by hardening people's hearts by handing them over to their sin and rebellion. Like what they want, I'll give it to you. Giving them what they want. This is the passive wrath of God. And it's terrifying. You don't want me? Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to make you. In fact, I'll just give you what you want. You can be rid of me. Here, have this. Is that what you want? Okay, fine, have it. This is Romans 1, straight up. Turn over to Romans 1. Verse 18. I mean, straight up, Romans 1. Passive wrath. Starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So that they are without excuse. Like, you can tell there is a God by looking around. Right? You look at the, the Mars rover and just see that. Where God made... Uh, there's an intelligent design to this. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but, their, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, therefore God, and here we go, gave them up. Passive wrath. In the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God, here it is, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And therefore they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is not about back then. Hello, 21st century. With the Equality Act, that's an inequality act. But God sometimes exhibits a passive wrath by giving people exactly what they want. But in this whole section, the brass tacks is this. God is loving, and therefore He has wrath, both active and passive. And the plagues show us this. They show us just a glimpse of God's just judgment. And yet they also show us, number three, the gracious mercy of God. The plagues also show us the gracious mercy of God. And this is seen most clearly by looking at the Israelites in the midst of all of these plagues and God's gracious mercy towards them. Because based on the text, it looks like they endured the first three plagues right alongside the Egyptians. But then when you get to the fourth plague, all the way through the tenth plague, God puts a division between them and the Egyptians. And He puts a hedge of protection around Israel. And so look at the fourth plague with me for example. Chapter 8, verse 20. Fourth plague. The plague of flies. Chapter 8, verse 20 of the book of Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. 
Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. Listen, I don't know if you've seen it, but I was watching a documentary this week about um, these salt lakes in Utah that get get these swarms of brine flies. Anybody ever heard of this, seen this, know anything? You're all looking at me really weird. Google it when you get home. Brine flies, salt lakes. This is how I picture this, but worse. And so it's everywhere. It's in their houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Eric, will you shut the door? That rain is coming down. He puts this around Goshen. He protects them. The question we need to ask is why? Why did God do this for the Israelites and not the Egyptians? Were the Israelites better than the Egyptians? Were they more moral? Were they more obedient? If you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that is absolutely not the case. Over and over, they are referred to as a stiff-necked people. As a foolish people. I mean, chapter 5, they are mad at Moses for obeying God. They're a stiff-necked people. I mean, we're going to see it even get worse. They're eventually going to get out of Egypt. God's going to deliver them, and what are they going to do? They're going to take all their gold, and they're going to boil it together and make a golden calf, a.k.a. Apis. The God of the Egyptian God of economic prosperity. And they're going to praise, hey, you know, forget God. But this cow, he delivered us from the cow worshipers. Scripture repeatedly refers to them as a stiff necked, foolish people, but listen, that God loved that He chose to set His affections upon. And in that whole episode where you've got the cow and they, like, is that not us? Just, I'll try to frame it again. They're delivered. They get respite. They get out of bondage. They needed God then. But now everything's fine and they return to their old idol. Is that not us? Something hard comes into our life and man, we're all in. We're in church. We're in Bible study. We're in small group. We're in the Word every single morning. Hardcore. We're after it. But then things get a little bit better and it's like, I'm good. I'll go back to my idols. I don't don't need God anymore. I've done that. I know we all have. These people are just like us. But the Israelites, I mean, they're, the, the whole point, they're not any better than the Egyptians. They are stiff-necked, foolish people. They turn back to their old idols over and over and over and over and over again. And yet God chooses them and puts a hedge of protection around them, provides for them, protects them, saves them. Why? Romans chapter 9. Turn to Romans chapter 9. 
Those of you who know your Bible, don't freak out. Well, everybody loves Romans 8, everybody's Romans 9. Ooh. Romans chapter 9. Verse 15. Romans 9, verse 15. I want you to turn there. I don't, I mean, I'm not making this up. I want you to see this. This is in the Word of God. Why does God save them, the Israelites? Romans chapter 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18, He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. Now, so some of you, your blood pressure just went way up. You're, you're, you're feeling a little weird right now. You're not sure you like this. You should actually love this. You should take joy in this. Because what Paul just told us is that the compassion and mercy of God isn't based upon what, like what we do or what we don't do. It's not based upon our actions. Like the, the mercy and compassion that He poured out on the Israelites and that He gives to us isn't earned in any way by us, but rather it was given to us when we were at our worst. This is gracious mercy. Which is, it's, and since it's like that, that's why Christians should be people who are marked by grace and mercy, being slow to anger, abounding in love, because that's exactly what we've been shown by God. So maybe you're here today and you're reading this and you're like, well, it says he's going to have compassion on whom he has compassion and he's going to harden whomever he wills. Well, maybe I'm just one of those people that are being hardened. The very fact that you are in this room at this moment, watching online at this moment, is proof to the contrary. The very fact that you're in this moment at this time, hearing these words, watching online, is God wooing you? Is God drawing you? Saying, come in, get in here. Get into the land of Goshen. Get out of the land of Egypt. Come in. I want you in here. And you realize Jesus is the friend of sinners, right? And so surrender to Him. Don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. Surrender. I mean, all of this wrath and judgment that we're even talking about today, which as sinners, as idolaters, because we all are, so we absolutely and completely deserve God's wrath and judgment on us, but that should all just serve to show us and highlight the grace and mercy of God because the big message of Christianity isn't that God has wrath. Like, He's got that down. The big message of Christianity is that He would save some, any of us. 
That's what the big message is. Like we, don't, we deserve this, but God offers this. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus took our place. He bore our wrath. The wrath that we deserve, Jesus paid it for us. And He gives to us, through faith, His perfect sinless righteousness. And therefore, we can stand before God holy and blameless, not on the basis of anything we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus did for us in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. This is gracious mercy that God has. That has nothing to do with us earning it. He gives it freely. And so praise God that He has mercy on whom He wills. Because, listen, if heaven's not a gift, I'm not getting in. And neither are you. We can't earn it. And so that's why the gospel is called good news. It's good news. Jesus has accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And the plagues point us to all of this. That God is God. He is not to be trifled with. He is sovereign over all things. And He is jealous for the praise of His name. And He has just judgment. But he also has merciful, gracious mercy. And through faith in Christ, you can come home to the land of Goshen, where you are safe from the wrath to come, because Christ has borne it for you, and he has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. And so sinner or saint, the call today is the same. Repent of your idolatry. Turn away from running back to your vomit, running back to the God of Apis, whatever your God may be. Repent. Turn from your idols of economic success, politics, fruitfulness, grades, the praise of man, the top performance review, the top seller in your company. Those things aren't necessarily bad. But they're terrible gods. Turn away and turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to fully surrender to You. To truly say we surrender all. To not sing we surrender some. But surrender all. And Father, for any in this room or watching online right now who have not yet trusted You by faith, help them to know that there is still yet time. And that the mere fact that they are here today is evidence that You want to bring them into Your family. You want to forgive them of their sin. You are wooing and drawing. And so... Give them faith to believe, to repent and believe. We ask You to work and do that, God. And for those in this room or watching online who have already trusted You by faith, God, help them to know You're not done with them. Salvation is not a finish line, it's a starting point. 
And from there and for the rest of our lives, you are constantly going to be stripping away the idols that maybe we're even blind to. We don't even see them. Yet you want to expose them and take them from us because they're robbing us and they're robbing you. And so for our good and for your glory, would you do that? And Lord, we know sometimes you do that with a chisel and sometimes you do that with a sledgehammer. But we surrender all. Help us to do that. We don't have the power in and of ourselves. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.